Welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby. And this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Weatherby from Optimal DX. Welcome to another episode of Optimal, the podcast. And I'm joined as ever by Beth Ellen DeLulio in Naples, Florida. How are you doing, Beth? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you. So it seems like every time that we do a podcast, there's some kind of hurricane or natural disaster <laughs> heading towards the East Coast. I think we're clear right now. I mean, maybe the the hurricane season mm. is coming to an end, but I think you survived mm. Ophelia, you survived Lee. Um, yeah, so we were lucky. We're Everything lucky. turns. They turn into the north now, so we're very lucky yeah. today. <laughs> but uh, you said it was uh, very hot and humid there. So Yes, today anyway. is very humid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, fall is on the way here in Southern mm. Oregon. I'm very excited to have us a guest today, Dr. Julia Markowski from Doctors Data. And she will be joining us to talk about her experience with Doctors Data and just chatting generally about health and medicine and optimal health and wellness. Anyway, Dr. Markowski graduated with a doctorate in naturopathic medicine in December of 2017 with advanced standing and also a doctorate in chiropractic medicine in April 2016 from National University of Health Sciences. She completed biomedical treatment for autism spectrum disorder seminars, fundamentals in functional blood chemistry, mastering the thyroid, and 100 hours in functional neurology applied to childhood neurobehavioral disorders. She began her career in naturopathic medicine after seeing firsthand its excellent results at restoring the health of her infant son, and she is now working full-time with Doctors Data. Welcome, Dr. Makowski, to Optimal, the podcast. I love the personal aspect because obviously my introduction to naturopathic medicine came from watching my dad as a as a young boy getting sick with uh, kidney disease and going to a naturopathic physician in southern England who really uh, focused on his quality of life more than just keeping him alive. And that was sort of for me as a, an eight, 10-year-old coming back from boarding school and seeing this this man who'd always been sick most of my life with sort of color in his cheeks and a little bit mm. more energy was definitely an inspiration. So I know you had a, a firsthand experience restoring the health of your infant son. If you have a moment, I'd love to to hear a little bit about that. Maybe tell the listeners a bit about your own personal journey and how you became involved in the field of healthcare and preventative medicine. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me here today and yeah, the ability to have this conversation. So I do appreciate this. Yeah, so I do understand your experience with naturopathic medicine, functional medicine, in that I did come to it upon a personal understanding as well, in that when my son was born, you know, as all parents want healthy children, there's nothing better in the world than healthy child, a healthy infant. He actually at three months old had a severe rash. And that was absolutely heartbreaking. And at the time, his pediatrician was regarded as one of the top pediatricians in the Chicagoland area. And he had told me, it is nothing to worry about. It's just something topical, maybe something from the detergent, you know, um, topical dermatitis. And 
that did not sit right with me because it was not going away. And I actually had started developing that same rash at that time. So it was very heartbreaking and discerning that my child was just deemed to have this affliction by the top ranking pediatrician in the area. So at that time, I was working at a a health food store, a local health food store. And somebody there had said, you know what, you might want to see a naturopathic doctor. And this was completely new to me. I had never heard of it before, as I'm sure many people can relate to that experience as a practitioner, but then also as a patient, right? This is something that we're not normally exposed to. And as soon as I walked in, the doctor took one look at it. And she said she took one look at my rash as well, which the pediatrician did not do. And she said, you know, Julia, you are very healthy, but you're allergic to dairy. (laughs) And you did not have a rash before because your body was able to compensate. But after pregnancy and nursing, your body is no longer able to compensate and you cannot digest the dairy. It is showing in your skin and then also in your son's skin because he's having difficulty digesting that as well. And this was all new to me and the way that she connected the the skin presentation with the liver function, with the nutrition, that was a completely new concept to me. And it did resonate with me. So she said right away at that time to discontinue dairy consumption and the rash would resolve within two weeks. And we did. And lo and behold, both of us resolved rashes within one week. So that was quite the remarkable experience. When we talk to our naturopathic colleagues, we'll probably find that that's you know, a relatively common experience that they have with patients. But for, like you said, for you, you hadn't been exposed to naturopathic medicine. So it was probably quite revelatory to have such a quick response. So where did you go from there? And it sounds like you kind of got the bug, so to speak, about natural medicine, and you began your journey to to become a, a naturopathic physician. And, and it sounds like a chiropractor as well. Yes, exactly. Right away, I started immediately and started that path. At that point, I actually was did not complete my bachelor's degree. So I went directly into pre-med to complete my bachelor's degree and then follow that with my doctorate in chiropractic and my doctorate in naturopathic medicine. And that was all at National University of Health Sciences outside Chicago, Illinois. This is actually one of the oldest naturopathic schools in the country. I always thought that my my alma mater was the oldest naturopathic university in the country. Who wants to be the oldest? Who wants to be the oldest, right? Who wants to be the best university, right? Yeah. (laughs) So that's, you know, that is an interesting point. And I don't know exactly who was first, but I do know National University of Health Sciences had that program and it was very short lived. So it was, Mm. yes. And then it became a chiropractic school mainly. And then they added the naturopathic program back again in 2008. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, it sounds like, how long have you been in practice? So it sounds like you graduated in 2016 as a chiropractic physician in 2017. Uh, Did you go straight into private practice? Correct. Yes. So I actually was in private practice with my chiropractic degree in Illinois. We are licensed primary care practitioners. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as I had that chiropractic degree, I was able to practice. Correct. Excellent. So what is, so so now you're working with, with doctor's data. And so tell us a little bit about your sort of current focus on the work that you do with them. Yeah, so Doctors Data is an excellent laboratory right outside of Chicago as well. And Doctors Data offers a variety of testing options that really provide, that go beyond the narrow, sometimes narrow scope of traditional testing. 
one of our tests that I am really involved in and I just cannot stop researching because <laughs> once you go down this rabbit hole, it's deep. It's the microbiome. So we do offer the GI 360 test. And this test is a functional assessment of the gastrointestinal microbiome. It really is all encompassing. It includes a microbiome abundance and diversity information, including dysbiosis index, and that's via PCR. Also including the cultures, so the traditional microbiology culture that's still gold standard for dysbiotic bacteria and yeast. And then we're looking at the markers of digestion, absorption, immunology, also parasitology, and then, of course, looking for pathogens within the, the microbiome as well. Wow. So a really very, very functional view of the microbiome, digestion, absorption. Do you look at markers for intestinal permeability? So we do offer fecal zonulin. Now, as you may be aware, fecal zonulin does fluctuate because that mm -hmm. intestinal barrier is constantly changing. And I'm sure you're, we're, we'll talk a little bit about uh, nutrition, but the standard American diet does induce intestinal permeability with the sugars and the alcohol and the gluten. So fecal zonulin does change. We do offer that test. Uh, we also offer serum zonulin. And our serum zonulin does correlate with the lactulose mannitol drink test. So you will mm -hmm. get the same results. Just wondering, does anyone actually do that drink test anymore? I mean, that was sort of... It's fading out for fading, sure. Yeah. And the other cool thing about GI360, though, is we are looking at specific bacteria which are associated with that mucosal barrier. As an example, Acromensia mucinophila, which is a very popular bacteria these days, does significantly contribute to that. So we're measuring that value and potentially these bacteria that contribute to mucosal barrier integrity can predict intestinal permeability as these bacteria diminish in their populations. Mucosal barrier can also diminish and then that can lead to intestinal permeability. So there's a, a multitude of information on the report. How can you get them to colonize? Can you add back acromensia? So with regards to that bacteria, it really does enjoy polyphenols and pomegranates is largely talked about in that area, but green tea, blueberries, things of that nature. And we can talk about this, but there's uh, different theories, right? So just adding one bacterium to the giant population might not be the best approach, but if you're going to use a dietary approach and you're adding polyphenols, this is going to support other bacteria populations as well versus a monotherapeutic probiotic, if that makes sense. It does. It does. I wonder too, if someone's had everything wiped out, can you add back something though, not just feed it, but add back the good guys? Will they really colonize? Yeah. So sometimes we do see that, but sometimes we actually do see that patients are on probiotics and they don't improve the reports. And actually one of the matrices that can be evaluated in that regard is called microbiome diversity. and mm -hmm. We're measuring that on our report. Diversity is very important with regards to any ecologic system. And in the colon, we find that as well. So studies have shown that when a patient has a diverse microbiome and they're given probiotics, it does repopulate. And then when patients have lack of microbiome diversity, it is more difficult to repopulate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. And so it looks like doctor's data has... A lot of other areas of specialty as well, cardiometabolic, endocrinology, environmental exposure, detoxification. I think you have some nutritional and toxic essential elements. 
Are there any particular areas that you feel Dr. State is really, you know, pushing the the boundaries in terms of where to take testing in these particular areas? Yeah, so I would say we are constantly looking at this and and moving the needle, you know, where we can. Everything we do in medicine, we can always improve, right? So in broadly speaking, yes. So with the with the stool testing, we actually just published data, antibiogram data. So this is all of the bacteria, all the isolates that we have collected over during a year's time. We have as a lab, a large volume, about 10,000 samples. And we have the data with regards to the specific bacteria and yeast and the prescriptive and natural agents. So we are able to report that information. So that's for in the stool realm with the cardiometabolic profile. We have an excellent profile and we are actually working internally on updating it right now. So we're going to actually add probably two, two more analytes there, most likely regarding insulin sensitivity, because insulin sensitivity is so important. And when we talk about glucose metabolism, when we talk about longevity, even when we talk about the immune health and this recent pandemic, so insulin sensitivity is very important. We're going to, we're talking and talks about adding that. And then even with our cardiometabolic panel, I was just speaking uh, last week with a patient about the, you know, they were very disheartened that their primary care doctor had only ran total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, and triglycerides. And I think that they did VLDL in this case as well. And they had done their own research and they said, why did my doctor run these? None of these are going to provide any information. (laughs) So with our cardiometabolic panel, that is one portion of the test, but then we have oxidized LDL, we have small dense LDL. So we really go beyond the standard markers. Mm-hmm. Great. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think the best way is to actually measure the body burden of toxins, including glyphosate, if you could address that briefly? That's a great question. So we don't have a test for glyphosate. We do have three tests that would address detoxification. We do measure RBC glutathione. So we can absolutely measure that. We do have an hepatic detox profile, which measures phase one and phase two detoxification. So phase one is exposure, phase two is conjugation. And then we also have hepatic detox profile, which measures the, excuse me, we have the DNA oxidative damage assay, which measures the how much of the DNA has been damaged. And the hepatic detox and the DNA damage assay are urinary tests. Urinary, okay, I was going to ask that. Yeah. Because body burden, you know, people are concerned and sometimes it's hard to tell. I know they did the cord blood test years ago and there were, what, 270 different chemicals in a child's cord blood when it was born. And it's, I think it's something we don't look at enough. And we did a little piece just the other day on detoxification. So that's one of my favorite areas to talk about because everybody's exposed. I don't know if there's anybody that could really not be exposed to toxins in this, the world that we live in. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yes. I think, you know, one of the other interesting things is really the medium in which we're collecting information. Obviously, we are very involved with blood chemistry analysis and, and what we can glean from serum and things like that. But you know, when you're looking at toxins, there's there's hair testing, there's okay. urine testing, there's, I guess, some stool testing, potentially even serum elements that can be measured as well. And so it can get somewhat confusing if you're a relatively new practitioner coming to this field and you're like, all right, what do I do? Do I do hair? Do I do urine? Do I do serum? Do I stool? 
I just kind of curious, sort of, if you have like a triage that you kind of look at, or if there's a particular medium that you feel is one of the best for looking at, you know, maybe toxic elements and things like that. Yeah. So with regards to especially toxic toxic metal exposure, we do have a variety of collection methodologies and mediums. So blood is standard of care, blood lead, blood mercury, we do offer that. We also offer whole blood is going to be the test for one of the considerations is going to be metal on metal prosthesis. And in those cases, we do see chromium and cobalt. So blood is the the test for that. And then you did mention hair testing. We do offer hair testing. Hair testing represents about three to four months of exposure. And that's an excellent screen. So you can see Mm -hmm. what someone's been exposed to in the past three to four months. And then there's urine as a medium as well. Now, urine is providing about two weeks of exposure without a chelation agent. And we do offer fecal metals as well. And fecal metals is largely dietary, especially methylmercury in the feces. And that is going to be about 24 to 48 hours of exposure. Excellent. The whole realm. That's awesome. And nutritional status, we're looking at, uh, obviously, in blood chemistry, obviously, there's a ways to, to look at nutritional status through serum and, and red blood cell or white blood cell levels. What does doctor's mm-hmm. data provide for sort of nutritional evaluation? Yeah, we do provide the RBC elements. So we do offer serum and whole blood, but the RBC elements is the unique aspect, the unique offer there with, especially with regards to magnesium, sodium, potassium, zinc, you know, those intracellular elements. We do offer that RBC elements test. We're also measuring the elements in hair uh, and urine, and that can provide a different piece of information as those are excretory tissues, but we do have those offers as well. You guys do blood spot testing? We do. So we do blood spot for our vitamin D test. So that's an excellent option. And then we also do blood spot testing for our DNA methylation test. So that's going to be the genetic test for MTHFR, COMT, MAO-A, those uh, genetic polymorphisms. So that's available via blood spot. Yes. All right. You see the future. The future of blood spot testing. Do you see a lot more tests being offered in the future? My understanding is it is expanding. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I believe we will see probably more in the future. Absolutely. Just out of curiosity, do you run blood chemistries personally on, on yourself or your families? Yes, I do. Yeah, the standard. Just the standard panels, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you have a favorite biomarker that you'd like to run? <laughs> the GI3C, the, the microbiome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, that's a rabbit hole. The more and more that I go down that, you know, as Hippocrates said at the be, you know, the beginning, the advent of medicine, all disease begins in the gut. And I, sure. the more research you do, the more you can find a connection there. So it's quite fascinating. So I would say that's a foundational component for sure. I saw a little something, just a quick, I didn't dig down at all, but they thought about Parkinson's possibly starting in the gut with a kind of a protein that didn't fold quite correctly. I don't know if you'd seen any of that early research, but again, everybody's looking at the gut first, go to the gut first. And now they're doing that with Parkinson's. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And then I believe it was, there was a, a study recently that they said that Alzheimer's too is associated with 
individuals that have IBD that mm-hmm. they're yeah. So there is a connection there for sure with the with the guts and the brain. Uh, and that will be interesting to see if we can potentially offer some therapeutics in that regard at some point. I had a quick question to go backwards a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah. With the dairy allergy, did they ever recommend goat's milk or just say no mammal dairy, none? Yeah. Sheep's yeah. milk, sheep's cheese. <laughs> yeah, good question. So at that time it was none, but as time goes on, I have explored a little bit more and do find that those sheeps and those goats are better, right? Without that um, mm-hmm. beta bond. So yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, the smaller animal, it's more sustainable to raise them. And I love Picorino Romano <laughs> cheese, mm-hmm. which is sheep's milk, the real one. Yeah. And I like goat cheese. I do tolerate some cow's milk too. I, you know, there's some that have been raised by vets and then I like the way that they're raised better and of course, if you feed them better, then the milk would be better. And of course, save a cow, use the milk, I guess, is a mm-hmm. saying. Or I just made that up, perhaps. So, yeah, I'm not 100% against dairy all the way around myself. Mm-hmm. So, and unfortunately, I don't, I don't tolerate a lot of things. And I happen to tolerate dairy. So I do utilize it for my protein in a lot of, way, a lot of ways. But I think that the way the animals fed it is so important. So if you have your own sheep or your own goat and you know what you fed it, then you can uh, even improve the quality of that milk. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. And there was a whole, there was a, a goat farm up in South Carolina we went to and they were making everything, <laughs> making key lime oh, wow. pie tarts if you wanted a treat, goat yogurt. It was kind of neat. And they had the big white dogs that protected the goats. It was a really kind of like self-sustained little farm and it was, it was awesome. So I really do feel when the animals are fed better and treated right. better, I think it makes a bit of a difference, you know, instead of factory farming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's a big thing of, I don't know if, if it's over in, in your neck of the woods, but we have uh, A1, A2 mm-hmm. cow's milk. Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever heard of that? I've heard of it. And I don't, I think it's if you have an immune response to the one that you might tolerate the other better. And yeah. I suppose you have I, to you know, be a hit or miss with that, I think, to try to test it. Yeah. I'm not sure how you can test one. I mean, other than just doing provocation challenges with it exactly. and see if it works. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, if I'm going to choose a dairy and I just use a little dairy in my coffee, that's about it. Mm-hmm. It's, I use that A1, A2. I guess it's not a, I don't know. Anyway. What is your cappuccino though? You can't make cappuccino. Well, they do A1, A2 milk. So yeah, you can actually froth it up very, it actually froths up very nicely. I've got like a little froth anyway, but we don't need to talk about coffee. (laughs) Do people love this? I'm sure Uh, they love personal stories. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I I eat goat's yogurt. My Mm -hmm. daughter actually was working on a goat farm this summer here in Southern Oregon and was milking goats and bringing home lots of raw goat's milk. And yeah, so I and having lived in Vermont for four years, where dairy is, mm-hmm. you know, king and queen over there, and you driving mm-hmm. around, you're seeing real cows living on real fields and <laughs> having real life experience. Are they happy cows? They are. Yeah, my daughter was actually at a boarding school called Putney in Vermont, and they have a working farm, and every student has to take a shift on the farm. So she was getting up at uh, five in the morning to milk cows when it was twenty degrees below, and. That was just her, and then they had the raw milk in the cafeteria, and mm-hmm. you know that's really part of of their life experiences, and really teaches them about what it means to to raise and take care of animals mm-hmm. and and bring their produce to the table. And I think it was a great experience, and she's very much into homesteading. But 
Wow. Holy cow. Holy cow. That's awesome. Holy cow. Holy goat. <laughs> holy basil. Excellent. Let's bring this back down to kind of like the, the personal and practical. I'm just kind of curious. What are, are you still seeing patients or are you mostly just working in the research side of things at Dr. Stata? Maybe you could talk a little bit about your day-to-day work at Dr. Stata. Curious yeah. about what that's like. Yeah, I am mostly with uh, Dr. Zeta. I do have a concierge practice that's just case by case. And so that's really where I do put together either review of lab reports, or if a patient has a diagnosis of some sort, I do put together essentially a research proposal that they can bring to example their oncologist or something of that nature. So that's mm-hmm. on the side. But really, I am with Dr.'s data, and we are constantly developing lab tests, and I'm working with physicians to review the reports. So that's on the day-to-day. And then also researching whatever is going to be new and upcoming in functional medicine and providing that information via journal articles or presentations in that field. So it's a good amount of research and then a good amount of interface with cases. And generally, the cases that I see are going to be you know, the more complex cases. Another thing that we do is we do take a note of trends, right? So we talked a little bit about the antibiogram data and things of that that we are noticing and reporting. And one thing that we noticed, let me see, about 2018 was elevated thallium in the urine samples. So that's something that, you know, we're taking a look at and we're diving into evaluate kind of where where is the thallium coming from uh urine and hair excuse me and blood actually so thallium that, is it radioactive yes. thallium pardon is it radioactive no not radioactive oh, oh, they're okay. not testing for radioactive great question yes yeah our tests generally do not identify the radioactive isotope so thallium uranium these are very common in the Earth's crust. Mm-hmm. So that's really where, generally speaking, they're coming from is groundwater and things like that. But we did notice a trend that thallium is I- increasing in the environment. And did you notice any geographical distribution with that? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, North America, I would say, more than more than other countries, mm-hmm. but now mm-hmm. it's actually increasing. And Beth, you had mentioned that study about the cord blood. Actually, there was a study around 2020, I believe, in that they looked at what the toxins in the placenta and they all had thallium in them. And (sighs) yes, thallium is neurotoxic. It displaces potassium and it crosses the placenta. And a study in Canada looked at the -the over-the-counter prenatal vitamins. Every single over-the-counter prenatal vitamin contained thallium. By mistake? I mean, intentionally or? You know, there's a few different considerations here. I would say at that time, a colleague at Doctors Data, she went through the great lengths to call the supplement companies that we utilize. And she said, are you guys testing for thallium like you're testing Mm -hmm. for lead, mercury, cadmium, et cetera? And they said at the time, no, right? Because thallium's not on the radar the same way that lead, mercury, cadmium, arsenic are. Maybe. Yeah, it should be. It should be. When you measure, and I asked because I was, I had some experience with measuring radioactive strontium ninety actually in baby mm-hmm. teeth mm-hmm. and in water. So when you pick up thallium, might it be the radioactive isotope, or can you tell that it's not the radioactive isotope? Do you know? Yeah, I can double check, but I know, for example, uh, strontium uranium. We are not identifying the radioactive isotope. 
So when you see it in bulk, maybe that's the total. I wonder if it could be radioactive and not radioactive because we talked about displacement and I always get people, like I say, you got to saturate your tissues with the real nutrient so mm-hmm. you don't take up the radioactive element. In my case, it was the radioactive mm-hmm. element, just like they do with, with iodine, with right? Iodine, if there's yeah. a DNA nuclear power plant, yeah, you're supposed to have stock iodine, potassium iodide. So I just wondered because I, to me, that's a big health issue. Maybe we can talk about that in the future, but it's a big public health issue that is overlooked as well. So mm-hmm. now with thallium itself, even then non-radioactive element, thallium yep. itself is toxic. So yeah, it should definitely be on the radar. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. did, so you said that you guys were studying this, you said since 2018, is that right? Yeah. And what, started sort, what sort of conclusions have you come to since then? Are you still seeing it still high? Yes. So the source at this point largely is going to be dark green leafy vegetables. Which they get it from the earth, though. We can't blame them. <laughs> no, of course, yeah. Right. Of course. Blaming the fish yeah. with the mercury. So, yeah. So, it's yes. somebody put it there, and it's toxic. Yes. Well, it's also naturally occurring, you said. But does it also come from industry, or is it all that thallium, do you think, naturally occurring and just getting stirred up, perhaps? There may be both. So, there is a consideration with industrial practices and the contamination of water and then water that may have been used for fracking can actually be legally used as irrigation for agricultural. What? What? Rewind. Oh my gosh. Maybe you should Uh, say that again. Yeah, say that again. Say that again. Fracking water can be used for irrigation. Oh my God. My boyfriend and I works out in Texas sometimes and we go out there and and Midland, sorry, I'm calling it Midland, but you know, when we got there and went to the hotel, we both got this rash from taking a shower. And people said, oh, don't worry about that. That's just a fracking chemicals getting into the water. And we're like, everybody puts up with this. This is okay with you. Wow. And like you're saying, Beth, it is part of the Earth's crust. And there does just seem to be an increasing incidence of exposure. And once it gets into the soil, like you're saying, and once it, you know, those dark green leaves, they just mop everything up, which makes them. Yeah, such a great... Even organic, though. If you grow organically, if you're not testing for thallium, it could be there and it could end up in the organic Mm -hmm. greens as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And there's... Mitrantium, yeah. Oh, that's frustrating. All right. So this stuff's in our bodies. What effect is it having on physiology? So with regards to thallium, as it displaces potassium, there's considerations for cardiac health, uh, neurological health. A cardinal sign is actually going to be alopecia. But with, you know, with metal exposure, generally, the symptoms can be vast, you know, fatigue, headaches, things like that, myalgia, things like that. Yeah. And then what can we do about it? With that metal, the consideration generally is going to be identifying eliminate exposure. So actually any, any metal, any environmental toxicant, it's going to be identifying eliminate exposure. That's number one. Then... Number two is we can do exactly uh, kind of what we've been talking about, detoxification. So mm-hmm. you had a, mm-hmm. a previous episode about that. So those those considerations support endogenous detoxification. With thallium, you can monitor potassium status. Liposomal glutathione is obviously going to be helpful. And then there is one agent for that, but it's not generally utilized, and that's Prussian blue. And Beth, you're likely familiar with that because it's going to be stockpiled. Tube feedings in the feedings, right? In the actual feedings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. This is so interesting. I love to get into the toxicity part. Ah. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea that that was even 
Uh, thanks. So thanks for sharing that with everybody. Could we mention too, I think, because as long as nobody has, if somebody doesn't have kidney disease, it should be okay, but also to load up on potassium because there should be some competition at the intestine. When you load up on the real nutrient, you tend to take up less of the imposter. So maybe making sure that people's diets are, you know, heavy in potassium as long as their kidneys can handle that. Would that be a good idea? Yeah. Enjoy your bananas, right? Yeah, bananas and baked potato, white and sweet. See, the poor white potato, I think it's a bad wrap, but it has like 600 milligrams of potassium. And if you bake it, right, if you boil it, you lose that. But yeah, to tell people, and we have some resources actually that give you lists of potassium and food sources of potassium, food sources of vitamin E and vitamin C and things like that. We'll make sure that that's available. Yeah. All right. You had mentioned homesteading. So growing your own and controlling the source of irrigation for your crops, for your dark green leafies, that would actually be a good idea as well. Yeah. I mean, here in in Southern Oregon, I mean, a lot of the land has what we call public irrigation, which comes from the high mountain lakes. And so, you know, another horrible thing is that every year Oregon puts out a catalog of all of the lakes where you can go fishing. And it's a recreational release and, you know, tells you a little bit about And there are so many of these lakes now where they say, you know, limit the amount of fish that you eat caught in these lakes because of PCPs and mercury. And they even say, you know, pregnant women only eat one trout per lake. And so it's like you have these vast bodies of water that are, you know, a lot of them are fed from snowmelt. And therefore, you've got, you know, a wide distribution of the snow being exposed to uh, the air and things like that and then flowing into these lakes, and then that comes into the irrigation. So I think unless you know what water you have in your well, and you're potentially irrigating out of your well, that's a bit of a crapshoot in terms, especially where I live around in just the water that you're irrigating with. And you don't really have control over what's in that water, unfortunately. So I think it's a a huge issue, especially on the West around water the amount of water, but also the quality of the water that's available for, for irrigation. Yeah. You know, my aunt has it in the northeast in New England. She has a tabletop greens. She grows greens in the winter and a tabletop with a light. Have you had any experience with that, Dr. Milkowski? It sounds like a good idea. Yeah, that does sound like a good idea. No, I haven't done that, but I've grown uh, sprouts, right, as an alternative. Yeah. Just, mm-hmm. yeah, the sulforaphane and all that. But yeah, it sounds like a good idea. What's well, amazing how much lettuce people always think oh lettuce probably comes from california but there's a huge amount of lettuce comes from southern canada in quebec and ontario and it's grown under these massive you know football size greenhouses i'm not sure whether they grow them in in you know controlled soil base or whether it's hydroponic but it is entirely possible to grow leafy greens and things like that in a controlled environment i I would presume the biodome Uh, the biodome (laughs) Yeah. It's a good idea. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk about or to bring up, and this is a question that we often ask our guests, is like, you know, what, what are maybe the top two practical or tactical things that you see that someone can do to improve their health? And I'm, and I'm beginning to question whether we should ask them to be eating leafy greens nowadays, but yeah. uh, <laughs> okay. what you're talking about. But yeah, what are, from your experience, you know, if you were to no one rides a train anymore. I was just over in Europe and everyone rides trains. Let's say you're sitting in a train and you've got someone opposite you and you're talking about health and wellness. What are two things that you would suggest or make a recommendation that someone can do to quite quickly improve their health? They could be stop doing something or do something. I'm just kind of curious what that would be for you. Just two? <laughs> well, we can do three. Come on, no, give us two and then we'll, maybe we'll, we'll do a third that can emerge. No, I can pick two. That's good. Well, you know, I really do believe in the foundational components of health and the basics. 
So sleep, I would say sleep is probably one of the biggest bang for your buck. You can get the biggest return on an investment with adequate sleep. And I even like to talk to adults about a bedtime routine, right? Because we do that for our children so often, but we don't think about that for us. And a lot of people do struggle with sleep. And once you add a bedtime routine into it and that wind down time, it actually does help to facilitate those natural processes, turn off the lights at dusk, those types of things, warm bath before bed, you know, those little things to give yourself preparation for that adequate sleep, because so much of physiology that rebuild the lymphatic system, the hormones, learning the, the neuronal connections, so much of that does take place during sleep. I love sleep. Some people think it's a waste of time. And it just kills me when they say that I said, No, you're restoring, you're restoring and recovering. Well, it's yeah. funny, because like one of our actually probably one of our most popular podcasts was on melatonin and mm -hmm. darkness deficiency. And yes. she talked about, you know, how most people don't keep their room dark enough. And yes. Therefore, you know, you're constantly in a sort of depleted state of melatonin and things like that. So mm -hmm. and I, you know, I remember when my kids were growing up that we would do you know an evening routine my wife would run a bath for the kids and yeah. rub their feet with, the, with essential oils and things um, do we do that for ourselves no it's like it's like and i don't think we do right. it to our adult children now anymore but <laughs> right yeah no i love that but adult bedtime routine that's pretty cool mm -hmm. yeah right. yes and a good point too about the darkness is people don't realize if your child is sleeping with a nightlight on or even as an adult your brain will receive that as daylight and mm -hmm. Processes, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, one of the tips was like if you can hold your hand up in front of your face at night and you can see, you know, even just an outline of your hand, your room isn't dark enough, which mm -hmm. is pretty. And a lot of people have like, uh, you know, fire, what are smoke alarms and things like that, little mm -hmm. tiny, and it's yes. amazing how much yeah. light that actually puts yes. out. It's a tiny yeah. little LED, and yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right. So I would say pretty much everybody that we've interviewed has always, I mean, sleep is going to be in their top three. So <laughs> yeah, you're keeping the trend going. So that's awesome. All right. What about number two? Well, number two is based on a, a, one of your recent podcasts, the, the Sarcopenia podcast, because I am, you know, over 40 now. So really thinking about longevity and with regards to longevity, it does seem that one of the best predictors is muscle mass. So in that regard, I'm thinking about my consumption of dietary protein and mm -hmm. constantly experimenting with that. But I'm trying to aim for one gram per pound per day. So that's where I'm at with, with that. And obviously weightlifting and things like that. And we talked about a little bit about, you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, things like that. So, you know, just preserving muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And a routine, an exercise routine, yeah. anything you do at home or some quick recommendations? Yeah, you know, I go running once a week with a group of friends. And I think that it's so important to merge those two things, exercise and, and socialization. So that's a key to longevity as well. And that's something I think in America, we don't really do too much. It's not a routine. Not, <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, we think of socializing, we think of, you know, going out and staying out late. And but I think socializing with friends where you're engaging in an activity is actually very beneficial for health yeah yeah great Agreed. i love that but one of the things that i just started doing is pilates oh good <laughs> you like you like yeah i love it yeah yeah so doing mat work and then getting on the reformer and it's funny because my sister's been a, a pilates instructor for many many years and i've never mm -hmm. taken a class she's over in england but i've never taken a class with her and i finally said to her i said becca you know i've started doing pilates she said finally you know you never do it when i'm around so 
anyway but i'm I'm finding yeah. that uh, and also doing it in a group experience as well i i always sort of shunned kind of group exercise and thought oh it's not really for me but it's actually quite fun when you've got five reformers and everyone's doing the same exercise it sort mm -hmm. of feel like there's a sort of camaraderie in the group mm -hmm. so the yeah community. i like that idea of community <laughs> exercise that's pretty cool yeah, that's more difficult than it looks. The the Pilates is right. Oh yeah, I'm I'm constantly like waking up and my abs are like very sore. So it's like working on that core is pretty cool. Yeah, had some crunches. Had some. Crunches. Yeah. All right, but what's something that you new and different that you're doing, Dr. Mokowski or me? No, you. Me? Well, you know, I do my thing. I have my little thing in the morning. I listen to NPR and I take about 10 minutes to do my crunches. You do like crunches. 500 crunches. 600. Right? 600, sorry. 10 minutes, 600 crunches. Wow. And then I go out, I dug myself a little beach and I do my beach yoga. And then I walk for about usually a mile and a half, two miles in the morning. And then bike a couple of miles at night and do yoga again at night and some more crunches. This is such a routine. I did start doing something though, let me say. When I brush my teeth, I have a two-minute timer. I started to do these like little squats in the doorway. Just hold on with one hand to the the frame and not too deeply so you don't hurt your knees. But let me tell you that I can do it for about a minute and that's almost it. But I can feel it. And I have mm -hmm. like kind of solid thighs. And I, you know, I, I really do feel it in the back area, in the thigh area. So these little squats while you brush your teeth could be a quick, easy that's routine. That's a great idea. Yeah, it works. And I do it automatically now. And I do get to brush my teeth twice a day when I'm a good girl. So I'm doing that for one minute twice a day. And I'll tell you something, if you feel it. So it's worth a try. Just don't overstretch your knees. Don't overstress your knees. Mm. <laughs> That's I mean, my chiropractor's recommended getting a, I don't know how big this thing is, maybe like a foot and a half square. It's like a foam pad that you stand mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And he said, while you're brushing your teeth, put the pad out and just stand on one leg. Oh, wow. So it's, it's, it's part of yeah. what you were talking about, Julia, of like, you know, how do we, as we're getting older, how do we improve our balance and proprioception and facilitate, you know, small adjustments in, in the micro muscles that sort of hold us and stabilize us? I tell you, it's, it's hard. You stand on one leg brushing your teeth <laughs> and then even to kind of get into a simple squat. And then when I got one of those toothbrushes that beeps at me, so when it does yep. two beeps, I know <laughs> a minute's up, then I'll switch to the other leg. I mean, it's... You know, I think you're absolutely right, Beth. It's like anything that we can do to sort of pay attention to our bodies, do something good for ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, brushing your teeth is a great opportunity. You're kind of captive mm -hmm. for two minutes. Why not do something? Yeah, pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Oh, I forget too. My couch potato, oh, it's just my couch potato routine, couch potato fitness routine. I have a big, thick mat and I put it on top of the couch. And I actually sometimes, if I don't get to ride a bike, do little just press with your heels in like one, two, one, two, one, two, like you're bicycling. Mm -hmm. And I'm feeling that in the front of my thighs. So I'm watching the news and doing that or some crunches. So I think, yeah, you can incorporate these little things into your everyday routine and it becomes simple and you don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Okay, Julia, what, what else would you like to share with our audience today? Any books you've written, any podcasts you're doing, any, this is an opportunity for sort of shameless promotion of your own work. Well, I will say I had an article published in the Townsend Letter recently about moving beyond the concept of testing and treating bacteria to testing and addressing bacteria and really thinking about the historical perspectives about the hunter-gatherer diet and how that was actually employed versus how it is represented and commercialized today yeah. Yeah. and using microbiome testing to really analyze where you're at and address that. So that's always fascinating, understanding you know, re really 
the foundational component of us as humans and putting that into a modern context. Well, congratulations. We can find so, that article. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell us where to get where people can get hold of that. It's awesome. Yeah, that's at the Townsend Letter on their website. So you can go in there and you can uh, search up Julia Malkowski. Do they still print the Townsend Letter? I, mean, I remember my local health food store used to have the Townsend Letter years ago. On paper. Yeah. On paper, <laughs> like a really thin paper as well. <laughs> yeah, this was actually, this is in the last printed one. Really, so. the last one? You're in the last yes. one? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Were you the last one ever or you're in the last printed. one and they'll do another one? They're printed, so they are no longer printing. That's the last one. So the last printed one ever. Wow. Yes. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, awesome. interesting time. <laughs> uh, Dr. Data, going to any conferences that you might be at? People could come and say hi. Yes, I will actually be tomorrow at A4M in Chicago. So cool. I will be there. And then I will be at A4M next month in Boston. The cardiac oh. yeah. A4M, that's always a fun one to go to. Yeah, it is. It's great. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be with colleagues and further the practice of what we're doing and put all our great minds together. So yeah, it's great. Well, Dr. Markowski, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing uh, all of your insights and wisdom and bringing Thalion to the uh, to the attention and uh, for sharing all of that. So really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to share that with us. Beth, any parting words? Just no, thank you again for carrying the light and bringing more people to this, you know, treating themselves better, I guess you could say. So yeah, thank absolutely. you. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. And thanks for tuning into Optimal Podcast. And we will be with you in another episode very soon. Until then, take care, be well, stay optimal.